we have the very Word of God itself. And when we spend time in its pages, when it comes alive to us and speaks to us and renews us and refreshes us and challenges us and comforts us and inspires us and enables us to know Him at a deeper, fuller, richer level, we have what Abraham longed for. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last few months, we have been steadily working our way through the mid-chapters of the book of Genesis, and this morning we are turning to Genesis chapter 18. And if you have a pew Bible, you will find it on page 28 as we read Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. We've been looking particularly at the life of Abraham, and 24 years have passed since we began four or five weeks ago to look at Abraham, and we come to chapter 18. It begins with these words. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre, and while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seths of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and he set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I have worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. 
I want to begin this morning with a true story. It was sent to me as an email about 10 days or so ago, and it seems appropriate to begin with it this morning. George Owen Walton was born on May 15, 1907, in Rocky Mount, Virginia. As an estate appraiser, he often had the opportunity to buy rare coins, jewelry, stamps, and books. And over the years, he'd built up quite a collection. When Walton had an opportunity to purchase one of only five 1913 nickels ever minted, he jumped at the chance. He paid $3,750 for it way back in 1945, and he told his family it was worth a fortune. But after Walton died in a car crash on his way to a coin show in 1962, appraiser surprisingly declared his nickel was, in fact, a fake. They marked it of no value and returned it to the disappointed family, and the coin stayed hidden in a strong box at the back of a closet for decades. Eventually, Walton's nephew, Ryan Givens, inherited the nickel. Even though it had been dismissed as a counterfeit, something told him that his uncle may well, in fact, be right. In 2003, the other four 1913 coins went on display, and a million-dollar prize was offered to anyone who could produce the fifth. Givens submitted his coin for evaluation. After hours of comparing and contrasting it against the other four nickels, six expert appraisers announced that Walton's coin was the real deal. Eventually, Givens sold the nickel for $3.1 million 100 years after it was originally minted. Imagine a coin worth more than $3 million, collecting dust in the back corner of a closet decade after decade. Now, I suspect there are for us moments in our life that for us seem normal, everyday, perhaps routine, even almost mundane but in fact are of significantly greater value and worth than we first imagine. Over these last five Sunday mornings together, as we have studied the life of Abraham, from our first study in chapter 12, when God impacts in a spectacular and profound manner the life of Abraham and Sarah, God has consistently, year after year after year, and 24 years separate chapter 12 and chapter 18, God has faithfully used the routine and the mundane and the everyday challenges and circumstances of the life of Sarah and Abraham to draw them into an ever-dependent relationship with Himself. And this morning, as we come to chapter 18, it begins in an almost routine manner. Abraham had been busy 
all morning long. Abraham is a wealthy individual. He has 300 servants. Who knows how many acres of land? It seems like endless livestock. And with all of that privilege comes responsibility as well. And I imagine he was going about his daily business, organizing, planning, preparing, supervising all that was his. And as is typical in the ancient Near East, and still today in the ancient Near East, excuse me, still today in the Near East and in many Spanish countries, we know between 12 and half past one in the afternoon or two o'clock, many cultures plan to have a siesta. And I imagine this was Abraham. He was sitting down out of the glare of the sun at the door of his tent, sitting relaxing. I imagine after lunch, his eyes would begin to close, his head would begin to nod, and before he knew it, he was fast asleep. And something changes, and Abraham wakens up, and he looks out, and he sees standing here three strangers, and he doesn't recognize them, and has no idea who they are. But the text is quite explicit. As the narrative unfolds, it is clear that these three strangers are of significance. Abraham hurries towards them. He shows instant humility and hospitality. He then goes on to serve them personally and immediately, and his greeting is not only eloquent, but deferential as well. And in all that Abraham does in those opening moments of the greeting, it is to suggest to them that they are very welcome. Please come, sit down, allow me to fetch some water. And in the Hebrew, it says a morsel of food. In fact, Abraham goes way overboard. He kills the best calf he can find. His wife takes six sets of flour. That's six gallons of flour. And he goes immediately overboard to give them the very best and plenty of it. And he says a morsel of food almost to indicate you're not an imposition. Please come, sit down, allow me to do anything I possibly can. And they, of course, say yes. Abraham is very eager to have them sit and relax, and he wants to serve them. And when, with considerable grace, he bows and then steps back into his family tent, then things liven up. And in the Hebrew language, he starts issuing commands. Come on, hurry up, let's go. We have three guests outside. Make, bring the flour, make the yogurt, bring the milk together, get the fatty calf. And he is quick, quick, hurry, hurry, hurry. And the three guests are outside, resting, relaxing, sitting in the shade. And Abraham comes. He doesn't call for servants or assistants, but he himself lays the table and serves them the food and he stands close by, ready to serve at a moment's notice. But we know what Abraham did not know, because the opening words of chapter 18 tell us that this meeting is anything but routine, mundane, or insignificant. Look with me at the opening words. 
the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. We know that God himself is there, and Abraham is now standing in the very presence of God. And Abraham has enough discernment to know that what he immediately sees, there is something else going on, something of value and significance, way beyond what it might first appear. Now, this was not always the way that Abraham responded when God was at work. If you've been with us, you will remember that when Abraham and Sarah left Galilee and ancient Palestine and moved down towards Egypt, as you look at the map, in a time of famine, Abraham was really concerned more about himself than he was his wife, Sarah. And he said to Sarah, you pretend to be my sister so they will not harm me and kill me. Pretend to be my sister, he said to his wife, and Abraham was more interested in his own security than in his wife's purity. And the restraining, restraining and restoring grace of God alone saved that day. In previous chapters, we have noticed that Sarah herself sought to manipulate and organize and plotted and planned and schemed and engineered to interfere in the purposes and plans of God, and it turned out to be nothing but a disaster. And over those years, Abraham has grown deeper and deeper and deeper in his relationship with the Lord, and to some extent, Sarah as well. And now Abraham has enough experience and enough spiritual discernment to understand what is happening is more than it first seems. And Abraham finally was able to do what? And we have touched on this before, and it's worth saying again this morning, that Abraham was now in the position where he could do the natural things spiritually, and the spiritual things naturally. The natural things spiritually, and the spiritual things naturally. Before we move on this morning, allow me please to challenge you ever so gently. In the course of today, and tomorrow, and over the next seven days, when you phone a friend, interact with colleagues in an office, deal with clients in emails, seek to raise children and grandchildren, plan and prepare to go to college after the summer. Some of our youngsters are moving up to school for the first time, and as grandparents, you are praying and helping them as they make that adjustment. And as you go through the daily, the routine, the mundane issues that lie before you, is your prayer for this week, Father, allow me, please, the spiritual discernment to do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. Father, may that be a priority for me this week. Give me a heart passion to see you in the day-to-day things of my life. And when we are there, then the routine and the daily 
and the mundane becomes significant and of great value. And then the passage changes. And a significant development occurs in verse 9. As they are eating, they turn and say to Abraham, Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, Abraham said. And then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And so Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? The focus changes from the meal and the interaction of Abraham to Sarah. And things were about to change for Sarah. And isn't it remarkable that for the last 24 years, Sarah had known of the promise of God that Abraham would have a son and generations and centuries later, his descendants would what? Populate the earth, be a blessing to nations, and one of his descendants would be born in a town called Bethlehem. And the Messiah of all humanity would come from the line of David and Abraham. And Sarah had longed for such a child. And now, at long last, her prayers were being answered in a spectacular fashion. And how does Sarah respond? She simply doesn't believe it. It seems only two Sundays ago she sought to orchestrate and engineer to bring all this to pass. But now her prayer has been answered, and she can't believe it. She refuses to believe it. How can this possibly be? And incredulity comes to Sarah. She is denying the very thing she wanted the most. But by the end of the story, when God challenges Sarah, and he says to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's pretty much where the passage ends, except Sarah says, I didn't laugh, and God says to her, actually, you did. And the spotlight was now on Sarah. And I wonder if Sarah did not want to stand in the spotlight of God. I wonder if Sarah did not want him looking deep into her heart and soul and into those recesses of denial and mistrust. And Sarah found it easier just to step back, just to deflect it a little, to deny what had just occurred. But God, with great mercy and love, would not allow her to do that. And Sarah had to learn this cardinal principle. And it's this, that the best way to heal a broken heart 
is to give God all of the pieces. Not some of them. Not the things he already knows about. But those deep places. The spaces in your heart and mind and soul and your emotions and motives and desires you would not share with another. But to take each and every one of them and willingly and gladly surrender them to him and say, Father, I can no longer deal with them. The pain is too much. The sadness is overwhelming. I don't know where to begin. Take it from me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Strengthen me. Renew me and allow me, please, to follow you again. That's what's going on here. And Sarah learned that in order to deal with a broken heart, all of the pieces had to be handed back to him. Back in 1998, I had the enormous privilege of baptizing a wee boy, and his name was Finlay McLaughlin. And from that name, you know he's not from Pickens County. <laughs> Young Finlay was about this size, and he sat in my arms. He was eight weeks old. And I remember it for this reason. Ruth and I knew his parents, Duncan and Fiona. We had known them as students in the early 80s. They subsequently got married, had been married for 15 years. They tried for a family on a number of occasions, and it simply wasn't coming to pass. Fiona had prayed many times. They had sought the best medical advice, but after they had gone through all of the hopes and dreams and maybes and deaths, they were told categorically that they could not have children. And one Thursday morning, Fiona, in her own devotions, was sitting on a chair with a cup of coffee, reading the Scriptures and praying. And she came to Genesis chapter 18, and she was reading this passage. And she came to the portion that said, and Sarah laughed. And she laughed out loud. She said, I almost spilled my coffee. And all of her hopes and dreams and prayers were articulated in that laugh. And she closed her Bible, prayed for her parents and her husband, and went on about her normal day's activities. Reading of the Scriptures and praying for Fiona was a daily activity. It was almost mundane and routine. It was every day. Four weeks later, her body began to change. And she thought she was coming down with the flu. And she ignored it. And 10 days later, she went to her doctor and said, I just can't shake it. I'm feeling tired and miserable and achy and uh, there's something wrong. And after all of the examinations took place, he said, Fiona, I think you're expecting. And she said, but I can't be. We've been married for 15 years. We've been told it's impossible. And he said, well, I think you're expecting a child. She went home, reported to Duncan, and they agreed they would say nothing else about it. Six weeks later, she went back to her doctor for a second time. 
She told him once again of all of the symptoms, and he ran some additional tests and said, Fiona, I'm pretty certain you are expecting. And because of all that they had been through, they covenanted together to say nothing about it. And around the 12 or 13, 14-week mark, they went for an ultrasound, and sure enough, they were given a picture where little Finley could be seen. They agreed that they would then tell Fiona's mum the following day. But overnight, their cat was sick. In the morning, Fiona took their cat to the vet, and the vet was able to give them some medication and help with the cat. And that night, they went round to see Fiona's mum. And she knew, of course, that the cat was unwell, but she had no idea the real reason for them coming for a visit. And after supper, they left the dining table and sat down, and Fiona, without saying a word, gave her mother the photograph from the ultrasound. And her mum took the photograph, and she held it up. She held it at an angle, then another angle. She put it under a small light, and she said, this isn't the cat. <laughs> and she was right. And she looked at it again. And the penny finally dropped. And nothing was said for 20 minutes. But there were lots of tears and lots of hugs. And God had intervened in the life of Duncan and Fiona as she read this passage. Finley today is a super young man, 17 years old. He will know this story. And Fiona and Duncan learned what Sarah learned all those centuries before, that nothing is impossible for the Lord and in, honor, in order for a heart to be fully and wholly healed and rejuvenated and renewed and refreshed, all of the part have to be willingly, gladly submitted to Him once more. And this week, allow me please to encourage you to come back to this passage, read it again, and say, Father, grant me the discernment to do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. Allow me to see you at work in and through the mundane and the daily and the routine. Father, refresh me and renew me. Allow me to take the broken parts of my life and surrender them to you once again, because I know without fear of contradiction, there is nothing too hard for the Lord to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Speak to us this morning. Write it, please, on the tablets of our own hearts. And may we this week live for you, and may we have the discernment to see you at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
To purchase a DVD of today's message, please send a check or money order for $10 to First Presbyterian Church and include today's program number. For more information, call 864-672-1846 or visit our website at firstpresgreenville.org. First Presbyterian Church of Greenville invites you to a celebration of freedom as we worship and thank God for our spiritual liberty. Services include favorite anthems and hymns and a message by Dr. Richard Gibbons. 